Now you talk about terror. What about for me? I've been terrorized all my days. I'm all my days. The media landscape in the U.S. is collapsing as journalism outlets at the national, state, and local levels close or gut staff. One-third of the country's newspapers have shut down, and two-thirds of its newspaper journalists have lost jobs since 2005. An average of 2.5 newspapers closed each week in 2023, compared to two a week in 2022. The decimation of local news outlets is even worse where papers are closing and layoffs have been nearly constant. In the last two decades, nearly 3,000 of the country's 9,000 newspapers have closed, and 43,000 newspaper journalists have lost their jobs. The bloodletting is only accelerating. Business Insider is eliminating 8% of its workforce. The Los Angeles Times recently laid off 120 journalists more than 20% of the newsroom, after cutting 74 newsroom positions last June. Time Magazine has announced impending layoffs. The Washington Post at the end of last year cut 240 jobs. Sports Illustrated has been gutted. CNN, NPR, Vice Media, Vox Media, NBC News, CNBC, and other organizations have all made huge staff cuts. The newspaper chain Gannett, which owns USA Today and many local papers, has cut hundreds of positions. The latest round of layoffs come on the heels of the worst job cuts in the journalism sector since 2020, when the COVID crisis saw some 2,700 jobs eliminated. The consumption of news and entertainment by the public in the digital age has turned many of the traditional media platforms into dinosaurs. But as they disappear, so does the core of journalism, reporting, especially investigative reporting. Digital platforms are, with a few exceptions, not sustaining repertorial coverage, certainly not on the local level, one of the fundamental pillars of democracy. Advertising dollars, which once sustained the media industry, have migrated to digital platforms where advertisers are able to target with precision potential customers. The monopoly that the old media had connecting sellers with buyers is gone. Social media and search giants, such as Google and Meta, snap up media content for free and disseminate it. Media outlets are often owned by private equity firms or billionaires that do not invest in journalism, but harvest and hollow out the outlets for short-term profits, accelerating the death spiral. Journalism at its best makes the powerful accountable, but as media organizations decline and news deserts expand, the press, increasingly anemic, is also coming under attack from political demagogues and sites masquerading as news platforms. Fake news, misinformation, salacious rumors and lies fill the void. Civil society is paying the price.
Joining me to discuss the crisis in journalism is Gretchen Morganson, a senior financial reporter for the NBC News Investigative Unit. She previously worked for the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, where she won a Pulitzer Prize. Her latest book is These Are the Plunderers, How Private Equity Runs and Wrecks America. All right, so let's start when we were both young newspaper reporters. And, and, and as I said before, I don't want to uh, begin this discussion by not acknowledging the faults of the commercial press, of which there are many. You and I come out of it. Uh, and as I, I, in my book, Death of the Liberal Class, I quote Sidney Shanberg, who also won the Pulitzer in Cambodia. People can see that story in the movie, The Killing Fields. And he had a great quote. He said, you know, we may not have always made things better, but we stopped things from getting worse. And I thought that was kind of a nice summary. Um, but I think like you, I'm terrified of what's coming and that loss of reporting, uh, however constrained it may have been, is absolutely deadly to civil society and to our democracy. But let's talk about, let's go back and let's talk about what newspapers did um, I was a foreign correspondent. You were a business reporter. Um, let's talk about, because I want to compare that to the void that's happened now. Let's talk about, when we go back to your own experience as a reporter, what is it that you did that was, that, that contributed to the health of our open society? Well, I, I think what I always tried to do as a business reporter was to question the conventional wisdom. Um, covering business for decades was a backwater. It was really um, populated by reporters who were cast-offs from other desks, uh, you know, and, and they would basically rewrite press releases, um, cozy up to the corporate executives. You can make a good living like that. You can, you can. <laughs> but so, uh, you know, I, I came into this business in the 80s when things were really starting to um, change and <clears throat> business became much more of a central, you know, uh, topic for the dinner table conversation. People were now, you know, having to they used to have pensions. Now they had to invest their own money themselves. They needed more information about how to do this. 401ks, et cetera. The democratization right. of the stock market right. was happening. So I really was sort of riding this wave of interest in business reporting. But um, while there are a lot of business reporters who really are only interested in you know, writing about the powerful, the rich, and how they got that way, what I really wanted to do was to try to help the average individual understand what they were up against and help them to see the reality of the world of finance, um, demystify it, explain it in ways that were understandable to them, and most important, question the conventional wisdom of the brilliance of the CEO, for example, or other, you know, sort of um, uh, uh, topics or, or elements of business that where you would revere people. Um, well, uh, that was not my thing. And it was very important to sort of strip away those veneers and show people, you know, really what was going on. But you did even more than that, Gretchen. I mean, it was about holding these people accountable. 
holding them accountable, shining the light on the dark corners, shining the light on the practices that were full of conflicts that really enabled them to take advantage of investors, take advantage of workers, um, give those people who don't generally have a voice a voice. And so uh, I would really always try to get to the individual and avoid the C-suite or the CEOs because they're not going to tell me anything of any import. Um, many of my sources, best sources, were workers who would call me. They would see something going on in their company and tell me that about it because they didn't think it was the right thing. So again, it's it was that ground-up reporting, which you yourself know well you did for decades out in the field as a war correspondent. You know, you're going to get those stories best from the people on the ground, in the trenches, doing the work. You're not going to get the stories from the CEOs. Yeah. I used to say in war, the higher you go up within the ranking system, the, 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 you know, the more untruthfulness you're going to find. Uh, that's why you better stay with the privates and the lance corporals. Um, uh, but that comes with pressure because you have powerful interests that don't like it. And I think we have to acknowledge that they had influence within the organizations. We both worked for the New York Times. You worked for the Wall Street Journal. Um, and, and let's talk about the kinds of pressures they are able to exert within a commercial media that needs those advertising dollars in order to function. Well, uh, there is a chilling effect that they try to exert. Um, you know, when you contact a company um, with a story, obviously I'm always very open with um, these companies that I write about and the people that I write about, about what my topic is and what I'm saying and what I've heard and why I'm reporting and why I'm contacting them. Um, uh, when the When those wheels start turning and they understand that it's going to be potentially critical story, uh, telling um, uh, an aspect of showing an aspect of the side of their business they don't want out there, then they start to exert pressure, uh, send lawyer letters, um, you know, uh, attacking the reporter, attacking the information that the reporter has, you know, gleaned from sources, questioning the sources, et cetera. So it's, but it's, it's just, that's the way the world works. And if, you know, you have to be able to stand up to that as a reporter, but even more important, you have to have an editor who is going to stand up for that with you. And this is where I think we start to see some of the fault lines now. Um, you've got probably still an array of reporters who are, you know, willing to go out and get the story no matter what. But do they have bosses that are willing to take the heat, take the pressure, and continue down the path? That is a question. Well, of course, it's become these organiz organizations have become more anemic. They've become more cautious because they don't want to lose the dwindling advertising dollars that they have. I want to make a point about institutions because we both worked within institutions. And for all their many faults, uh, uh, the great theologian Paul Tillich said all institutions, including the church, are inherently demonic. But for all their many faults, we had lawyers. We, I think there were 19 lawyers on the staff of the New York Times. So 
uh, and, and I believe when I was at the paper, there had never been a successful lawsuit. They, without the superstructure of that institution, a lot of our protection, I mean, for instance, if you were a freelance investigative journalist, uh, you're much more vulnerable. And those, insti we, those institutions are important in terms of creating an organizational structure that protects us. Yes, yes. You know, I spent a good part of my early career at Forbes and Magazine, which was a business publication. And then it was very, you know, it took no prisoners. You, know, you called a spade a spade. And, and it was, it celebrated the good uh, companies and the good CEOs, but it really did take others to task. And so, I believe you had a, an editor, you, you mentioned him to me, maybe mention his name, but you just talked about the importance of an editor with that kind of uh, you know, courage and integrity. So, and that I believe was the case at Forbes. Yes, his name was Jim Michaels. He was a crusty old UPI reporter who had broken the story of uh, Gandhi's assassination in India years earlier. Um, he was just—he was tough. He was demanding. He was exacting. Uh, he was a curmudgeon, but he would stand up with you um, against, you know, the pressure that would exert from CEOs. I remember one time I had done a story about um, uh, Time Warner and Herb, Ro Herb, uh, Herb Ross, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, Steve Ross, Steve Ross. Herb Siegel was the other person. Steve Ross was the very wealthy and, you know, um, commanding CEO. And he didn't like the story. And he demanded that we come and see him. And Jim Michaels said, no, God damn it. You're going to come down to my <laughs> office if you want to talk to me about this story. So it's that kind of a thing. It's that kind of a, um, you know, uh, attitude and approach that I'm worrying that we don't have anymore. We don't have people who are willing to, um, really take on some of these extremely powerful people. It's just easier not to do those stories, and that's a problem. I always was surprised at the times among the top editors, the level of mediocrity. Um, I mean, you and I were kind of management headaches, which is what good reporters should be. But I, I'm not going to name names, but you know them as well as I do. But I always was stunned, and I think it's because they were completely uh, obsequious to the power of the institution and and understood what was good for their careers and advancement. And that beyond that, they didn't really have much. Well, don't forget, these are people who maybe weren't very good reporters. Well, that's the other thing. You're right. They maybe right. weren't that great at, at reporting. And so what was their option? Well, right. their option was to sort of climb the greasy pole if they could. Um, you know, when you're a really terrific reporter and you've, you know, got the great story, you know, you want to continue down that path. You want to get the next one and the next one and the next one. But if you're not a great reporter, then what are your options? Well, you could become an editor. Right. There you go. So I once had a professor at Harvard who called uh, an assistant dean a, a mouse training to become a rat. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> kind of sums up newspaper hierarchy. Wow. Um, but we are, you know, you are promoted within those. These are money-making institutions. You are promoted within those institutions if they know you will, in the end, serve the, largely serve the institution. 
there are some exceptions, but y- y- they y- your service is not in the end to the reporter, not to the it is to the well-being of the institution and the sustenance of the institution, which is defined in terms of share price. And I mean, that's just a cold reality of. Um, and and you work within those constraints. Um, so I had, you know, I was overseas for twenty years. If I was reporting on a conflict in which, like for instance, the war in the former Yugoslavia, where there was not a direct U.S. interest, unlike when I reported in El Salvador, Nicaragua, or when I reported in Israel, I had a lot more latitude. I could write things about Slobodan Milosevic. I mean, I could practically call him a genocidal killer and. Uh, you know, nobody at the New York Times would blink. But if I got to Gaza and started writing you know, with that same kind of ferocity against Israel, um, oh, I couldn't. I mean, so I, I, I'm interested as a business reporter uh, whether, you know, there were certain areas you like that you could go and other areas that you were where it was more constrained. I never had a situation where I was told not to write about something or where a story that I had already started to pursue uh, would get spiked. I never had that situation. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, I think business reporting um, is a little bit different from war zone reporting because the stakes in the war zone are just so much greater, so much higher. And you're involved. You've got politics very, very heavily involved in those situations. Washington. I mean, that's just a well, you whole- Well, you had law firm, corporate law firms. You know, it's just not as, it's just not as life and death as war reporting. I mean, it just isn't business reporting. So I don't know. I, I've i never had someone tell me, no, you can't write that story. Maybe I'm unusual in that regard. Um, but uh, I was hired to bring a level of expertise to the Wall Street coverage at the Times. It wasn't that they didn't have the necessary, you know, pieces in place. But I had been on Wall Street myself and I had seen some of the practices and knew where the bodies were buried. And so, and had done some pretty serious reporting at Forbes. And I think the Times wanted to have some gravitas on the Wall Street coverage. And so maybe that is the reason why it wasn't uh, although, although in the end, you were questioned. You, you, well, in the, a, end, in the end, in the end, there was a new business editor right. well, that the, came that's along. That's your point. That's the point you made. And said, you know, uh, less than enthusiastic things about some. Oh no! Of you have my... to quote what she said. It's really priceless. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you had. I just want to say you had arguably the most respected business column in the country. I mean, I mean, even I knew about it, and I don't even read business. <laughs> so let's just start from there. Uh, but, but what was the response of the editor? We don't have to name her. Well, what'd she say? Uh, she said she liked my reporting. That's a bad. That you know, you're in trouble when that's <laughs> liked my reporting, and but that the column was lefty and opinionated. Right. 
It was a reported column. It was a reported column. It was not opinion. It was, uh, you know, it, it was so shocking to me that this would be the perception um, that I just, I mean, I, I, I didn't respond at the time. I was sort of just okay, interesting. But I then decided, you know, I'm not going to work for this person because anybody who would make that kind of comment about the work that I had done for 20 years at the Times, I'm not going to work for that person. Right. Well, it's the, they just deliver the death sentence anyway. You know. Yeah. You, next thing you know, you're on night rewrite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or earnings. I have to do you know the New York Times earnings every every quarter. Right. Let's talk about a couple of the stories that you're proudest of, and then explain why. Um. Okay. Well. One happened during the great financial crisis of 2008, which was something that seemed to come out of left field for many people, but really had been building, building, building as these things do for several years. This was the mortgage crisis. It was based on, um, you know, too much money chasing homes and people going a little bit crazy and the Wall Street machinery of pooling mortgages and selling them to people, even though they were bad mortgages. Anyway, there was a lot to cover, and it was a really, really fruitful time for a financial reporter because explaining why this thing had happened, how it had happened, and how it impacted people. And again, this was a situation where there were human beings who, because they couldn't pay their mortgages because the interest rate skyrocketed after a certain period of well, time. Well, we should be clear, those subprime mortgages were sold by entities who knew That's right. that they weren't going to be able to That's pay right. them. And then they offloaded them as fast as right. they could. Right. Right. And so the people who were stuck in those mortgages, you know, they literally had their furniture out on the curb. Yeah. They were thrown out of their homes. Their children could no longer go to the schools where they were. I mean, these were real tragedies. And so writing about that was was really important to me. And, um, uh, you know, the government's response was too little too late. They were trying to maybe help people renegotiate their mortgages. It didn't really work. Anyway, you know that how that happened. You know that what what happened in that situation. But there was a story that occurred after Lehman failed, um, after Bear Stearns was purchased by J.P. Morgan in March. Uh, Lehman then failed, and then AIG failed um, and had to be bailed out. And AIG was an insurance company, and so that was a little bit different. It wasn't a bank. It wasn't a brokerage firm. It wasn't a um, a Wall Street firm that had gotten over their skis on mortgages, but nonetheless, it was a, <clears throat> a it was the largest insurance company in the world, and so therefore, its failure was going to be and it had insured a huge problem. The subprime mortgages that were no good. It had some insurance, yes, um, that uh, it had actually written these derivatives. Um, it had ba basically made the bet that the mortgages were money good, they weren't money good, and so then they were on the hook for it. But what I ended up, I wanted to understand this bailout. Why was the government bailing out an insurance company? I mean, it was really unusual. Um, and it was a lot of money. It was like $180 billion or something. 
And so I dug into it and I found out that really what the bailout was about was about bailing out Goldman Sachs. Yeah, awesome. Who would have been on the hook, would have been facing a $5 billion hole in its balance sheet if AIG had been allowed to go off the cliff, okay? So this bailout of an insurance company really was a bailout of Goldman Sachs. And during that time, the Treasury Secretary was a former Goldman Sachs executive. Goldman Sachs had a term, they, they were known as government Sachs because they were so powerful in the government. Uh, Hank Paulson, Paulson was yeah. his name. That's right, Paulson. And uh, so this was newsworthy, you know, that the government was bailing out an insurance company, but really bailing out gov government Sachs, Goldman Sachs. And so this story appeared on the front page of the New York Times. It was literally a couple weeks after the bailout. So this is real time explaining this behind the scenes situation. And um, I got a phone call that Sunday. It was a Sunday. It appeared on the front page. And I got a phone call from the Timothy Geithner, who was the head of the New York Fed, who then became the Treasury Secretary under Obama. And he called me up to tell me that the story that I, I had misled my readers by writing that story, that, that Goldman Sachs was not imperiled at all by an AIG failure, that... Um, uh, this was very bad for Goldman. I was making them look bad. And um, that, and I said to him, how do you know AIG was, how do you know Goldman Sachs was not imperiled by this? And he said, well, they were hedged. Their position was hedged. Now, what that means in financial um, mumbo jumbo is that they had some kind of an investment that would cancel out the problem that they faced if AIG folded. That's a hedge against, you know, whatever. Anyway, I said, interesting. I said, you know, if the world's largest insurance company goes off a cliff, I'm not sure those hedges would have held up properly. Did you examine who their counterparties were? Who were the people on the other side of those investments, those, the hedges? Um, well, no, I, I, I didn't examine them, but Goldman told me that they were hedged. So, so he was saying that the thesis of my article was wrong, that they weren't facing a $5 billion hole, that it wasn't really a bailout of Goldman Sachs. And, you know, he was criticizing the story. And he went to my boss, and I'm sure my boss's boss. Anyway, turns out, of course, that a congressional investigation, it was, in fact, Goldman Sachs was, in fact, on the hook for $5 billion, and the, invest, the you know, bailout was really about that. Um, but the idea that I would be phoned by the head of the New York Fed, who then became the Treasury Secretary, to tell me that I had misled my readers was an interesting moment. I later learned that the CFO of Goldman Sachs had put him up to it, had asked Timothy Geithner to call me and read me the riot act and to try to get 
you know, to cast aspersions on the reporting. What's interesting is that, of course, what they're trying to do is discredit your work. And if, you know, especially if you keep doing that kind of work, push you out. And so I've seen that kind of pressure put on good reporters who reported factual information and they do get pushed out. And then only later we learn that they're right. That's a phenomenon that happens. I saw that several times. Um, so that's, you know, part of the pressure. And if you play the game, you know, if you rewrite those press releases, you'll be having dinner with Geithner uh, or Hank Paulson or whoever. I mean, those are, you know, quote unquote journalists who sit at the decks right next to us in the newsroom. So let's talk about the decline and, and where, where we've gone. Um, uh, with all of whatever the sins are of the old news industry, um, we're not in a better place. Uh, so you saw Craigslist, 40% of newspaper revenue was classified ads. That's gone. So that was a 40% hit right there. Then the rise of digital media where they all have our profile. They can target us directly. They don't need a news organization to target us. The print ads are down. Um, the New York Times has managed to survive, survive, uh, although they're not making the money they used to make. I think they have 10 million or something digital subscribers. Um, but that's not happening at other papers, including the Washington Post. Um, but let's begin with local news because local news is vital and that's all but collapsed. Absolutely. And talk about the role that Local newspapers, these are small community, maybe they serve three or four communities, um, but they covered the school board, they covered, and they're completely gone. Uh, so let's begin there before we talk about the national press. Well, the evisceration of the local media is a dire, dire situation. I mean, you think about uh, just, there was a West Virginia newspaper that was really at the forefront, for instance, of covering the opioid crisis. And, you know, they had they won a Pulitzer Prize for this coverage. And it was um, they went out and found these pill mills and they found out that the you know, these people were prescribing like the equivalent. Of Let me just explain how a pill mill works. A doctor will come into a town. I write about it in Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt. And he sits behind a desk. I used to see the lines in West Virginia. There's a giant line outside. You walk in, you give them $50 cash, and they write you a prescription for Oxycontin, to which right. many people were addicted. Right. That's a pill mill. That's a pill mill. And he'll, that doctor walk away with thousands of dollars yes. for just yes. writing prescriptions all day long. So this newspaper found that the, you know, uh, they, they looked at the numbers of pills that were prescribed in, in these towns in West Virginia and it was something astronomical, like 8,000 per person right. per day or something. And so it was really great work. That's the kind of work we're not going to be seeing. And these are, these are voids, these are holes that you really can't even know how bad it is because it just means you know that there are people doing you know, mischief in the state house or in the school board or at the town council, and they're not being watched and they're not being held to account. It's it's a recipe for disaster. And I don't know how it's going to, to turn around. It's interesting that I was reading about the Iowa caucuses. Traditionally, uh, candidates would spend a lot of time with local Iowa newspapers. And they would be able to raise issues of concern for the community. 
but now with the death of those newspapers or they've you know they lost significantly lost circulation i was reading that the candidates don't even bother it's much more beneficial to their campaign to get on fox or cnn or whatever they they, they don't even bother with the local press at all interesting well so then you uh, that obviously means that they're not going to know about the issues that this community needs them to address so that's a huge gaping hole in the if if it's a politician that wants to actually do the right thing, then they're not going to know what it is that they need to do. So when newspapers fell into decline, the, they slashed the most expensive aspects of journalism. That was foreign reporting, gutted. So it used to be when I began in the 80s. Uh, large regional papers, the Boston Globe, the Philadelphia Inquirer, even the Baltimore Sun, they all had, they had not only foreign sections, but they had foreign correspondents, not as many as the Times, but they had them. I think the Inquirer had like six, same with about the Globe. That's finished. And the other is investigative reporting. And you and I have each done investigative reporting. That is not a skill that is required quickly. Um, and that worries me tremendously. Uh, because they want a reporter who's going to churn out three or four stories right. a day to fill, right. you right. know. The, uh, so let's talk about investigative reporting, the role that it plays in our society, its importance, and 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 its the consequences of its loss. I don't think you can overstate the consequences of its loss. It's it's about illuminating the dark corners about shining a light on bad behavior. It's about all of these things that people need to understand that are affecting their lives, right, every day, but they don't know it. Mm. And so you as the re reporter, you as the journalist, it's your job to tell them what's going on, to show them how it's impacting them, to show them how the, you know, crooked politicians' activities are actually harming you and raising your costs or gutting the school where your child goes or whatever it is. I mean, it, this is so important for people to understand what the pressures on their lives are about. That's what investigative reporting can help you to see. And if we don't have it, then they're really not going to understand the world that they live in. I wonder to that extent, and you know, you you raise this in your book, The Plunderers, you know, that people know something's wrong. These are on private equity firms now. They're kind of pillaging the country. That people know something's wrong, but they don't quite know what it is. Um, and that, of course, this compounds that. Um, and to what extent does that give fodder or rise to a figure like Trump? It absolutely elevates a figure like Trump because he can tap into that uncertainty. He can tap into that, I don't know why I'm upset, but I'm upset. There's a reason why it is. Well, the reason why it is is because you can't put food on the table or your pension has been eviscerated or your health care costs are through the roof. These are all things that pressure people's day-to-day -day lives. And so if you aren't understanding those pressures, where they're coming from, who's exerting them on you, then you're just going to have this sort of nebulous uh, 
you know, worry, concern, unease about your life. And here comes some demagogue that says, I'm going to make it better for you. I'm going to fix all that. I'm going to, you know, these elites over here are causing the problems for you. I'm going to make them go away. I'm going to get rid of them. He'll be able to fill a void because he'll say, this is what's ailing you and I'm going to fix it. But it also feeds conspiracy theory. Yes. Because you know something's wrong. Right. But it's it's behind the wall. You, you don't really understand the machinery. You just know something's wrong. Well, and this is circular because oftentimes there is something wrong, and oftentimes it is something wrong within a government, for example. But this feeds into this deep state notion that the government is out to get everyone and that the government can't do the job and that private industry will be better able to do the job. It, it's a circular thing. It, it feeds into that notion for sure. So one of the things that's happened in the news industry since you and I started is the rise of, you know, celebrity gossip as news. I remember when Princess Di uh, died in Paris. Uh, the editor of the Times, Joe Lelyveld, was uh, asked uh, why the coverage was so minimal. He's the one who took the, the previous editor to put TVs in the newsroom. He took them all out. And um, so he said, oh, no, I, I, too minimal. I think we did too much. That's certainly changed. And, and um, I found that very corrosive, that fusion of entertainment and news. wondered if you could talk about that. Well, I'm a business reporter. And so where I see that coming in is the um, celebration of CEOs, the celebration of, and, and CEOs are the celebrities, right, yeah. in business. Like Bezos and these In business yeah. reporting. Yeah, so, right. you know, the, you know, holding these people up as geniuses um, and really not questioning them, um, that's very corrosive. You're absolutely right. So I see, I don't cover the entertainment world, and so I don't really pay attention to that, but I see the same thing happening in the notion that um, these are people to be really uh, lauded and revered instead of questioned and, um, you know, really held to account for what they do. It's almost as though the fact that they have risen to this position of power and all the money that comes with it insulates them from any kind of investigation, any kind of questions or skepticism. And you do have a lot of reporters who really buy into that, that these CEOs, you know, well, they're a CEO, you know, why would I question what they're doing? Well, they want access to them. They want access to them. They want to be invited to the party. Right. I don't want to be right, invited right. No, to the party. Nor do I. But they do. And, you know, I used to see that in Washington. How Washington we, is a whole nother level of that game. That's a swamp of that. I am so glad <laughs> every day I count my lucky stars. I'm not a political well, reporter. You go to the White House. You don't have to take notes because every word the president utters is printed out and given to you. I mean, really, it's a horrible job. You're just a stenographer and you get to write, I guess, on a big plane and the president, you can introduce your mother to the president or something. I really never was totally mystified by anyone who would want to do it. But Good. I think that's it. I think that there is an element within the press that is always 
you know, wanted to be within that circle of power, that circle of celebrity. And, uh, and that has really dist always distorted Washington reporting uh, for, you know, for decades and decades. And now maybe you have more of that because you have less of the yeah. other. You have less of the investment in investigative reporting. And so the balance just feels like it's really skewed now towards that. So let's talk about, because, you know, at the introduction, I'm talking about the collapse of national media. I mean, the Washington Post is in serious trouble. Um, uh, they're, you know, the papers that are still around have slashed their Washington bureaus. I mean, there are, you know, very, very few reporters. And that's important because it, let's say you're from the Philadelphia Inquirer, or, you know, what well, had once been a major regional paper. You're going to focus on issues in Washington that affect residents of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Yes. That's yes. gone. That's not being done. Um, so we talked about the collapse of rural. What are the consequences of the collapse of the national press? And we should be clear, these papers, like if 20, 30 years ago, you bought the Sunday uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, you're talking about a five-pound paper. I mean, you're talking about 750 reporters and editors uh, these were major journalistic enterprises. That's gone. These papers are a shell of what they were. Uh, the staffs have been eviscerated. Uh, let's talk about the consequences nationally. Well, you just think about it in terms of Washington. I mean, the the superstructure in Washington, you know, you have the regulatory agencies, you have the, you know, Department of Defense, you have Health and Human Services. I mean, these are gargantuan entities that really need to be covered, that really need to be understood. They're affecting everyone's lives across the nation. And if you don't have people who are sophisticated and knowledgeable and aggressive about covering them, then it's going to be, they're going to be left to do whatever they please. And it's going to have enormous impacts down the line on people. You know, it's going to be impacts on their health, um, on their pensions, on their futures, on their children's lives. I mean, it's just, it's, it's across the board. And if you don't have reporters questioning what's going on in these, you know, huge agencies and the White House, then, oh, my gosh, scary. Well, and also, in order, let's say you cover the Pentagon or you cover the Department of Energy, you need a, a body of knowledge. You can't just fly in and do it. Right. It takes years uh, to really understand and report well. And so it's it's... Uh, we're losing that sense of expertise, uh, especially with staff cuts, because when news organizations do buyouts, they buy out those with the most experience. Right. Those with the most experience are the most expensive. And so those are the people that, you know, are the first to go. And I feel really bad for young reporters who are starting out because you learn from people who've right. been around. I did. And I really, you know, everybody's going to make mistakes. There's no doubt about it. But it's really so helpful to have, um, you know, the expertise of a sophisticated reporter in a newsroom. You go say, hey, what do you think about this? Um, can you help me with a source here? You know, I mean, it's, it's, 
it's a collaboration, but learning how to do that work, I don't know how they're going to do it with many of these people who are able and expert at it gone. To what extent does this essentially allow so-called fake news, conspiracy theories, freer reign within the media landscape? I think it opens the door to a tremendous, um, you know, increase in those kinds of stories. But also it's, it's a, part of that is this derision for the real media, yeah. which is, you know, very damaging and very dangerous where you have, you know, the president of the United States saying that the media are the enemy of the people. I mean, that is absolutely hair-raising and frightening. Do you think that, you know, both like Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald, for instance, blame the media? I mean, I think that there is some merit to their argument in terms of we, uh, you know, as, as things have become more dire within the industry, we've become less aggressive. I mean, I think that's true. Um, but to what extent is the media culpable for that animus by the, from the public? Gosh, I mean, I think it's a, a shared thing. I mean, I think, I don't know if it's 50-50, I don't know if it's 75-25, but media, they make mistakes. You know, it's part of the job is difficult to brook. Like if there's a tragedy, you've got reporters sticking microphones in people's faces and saying, tell me how it felt to, you know, see your right. child die or whatever. I mean, you know, it's a, it's, there, there are ugly aspects to the news gathering business that certainly can, you know, turn well, people I, I, off. But, you know, it is important to get the facts. I'm and, just wondering to, you know, with the kind of siloing of the media. So it used to be that these large media organizations sought to reach a broad audience. That's over. And Matt Tybee wrote a good book about it called Hate Inc. So you had, for instance, the New York Times. Its digital service took off during Russiagate. Its readers hated Trump. Um, it fed the Russiagate narrative, and everybody should read Jeff Gerth's right. brilliant 20,000-word uh, investigation into the Russiagate uh, story in Columbia Journalism Review. But there was an economic incentive to keep feeding it because it's what that demographic that subscribed to the New York Times wanted. Um, I had listened to their podcast called The Caliphate by a reporter having spent seven years in the Middle East. It's, I smelled a rat about five minutes into it. As anybody who had spent significant time, I think, in the Middle East would, um, to what extent has that corroded the credibility and that people are too, MSNBC was, of course, even worse than the Times, in, in a sense that uh, because of the new economic model um, and because they've taken such hits, these media organizations are too willing to cater to what their readership or viewership wants. I think it's a huge problem and it's very difficult to measure the impact because you think about the old days when, you know, you would read a general interest newspaper and you would get a broad spectrum. Well, that's the other thing. That's right. You would get different. You would get different viewpoints. Yes. You would get different information. Right. And you would, 
you know, maybe you wouldn't read the whole story, but you would see the headline and you would get the picture of what it was about and you would be informed uh, about something that was not in your wheelhouse, not normally what you care about, et cetera, but it would expand your understanding of the world and the way it works. That's important. That's kind of gone if you're talking about people who are just going to the I hate Donald Trump market and, mm. you know, continuing or, or to- Or I love Donald Trump. Or I love Donald Trump and continuing to feed that. Right. You're not expanding their minds, right? You're not it, it growing their understanding of the world. And, but that's very hard to measure what that loss is. It's a, it's a, it's a loss that you can't put a figure on, but it is enormous and it's important. Where are we going? What's happening in terms of journalism? Gosh, I don't have a crystal ball on this. I think it gets worse. Um, you know, there are all kinds of people talking about what can be done should the government intervene. I think that's a bad idea. Um, does it maybe become smaller entities that serve uh, an audience that is willing to pay more money for. But then the problem is a paywall. Right. I mean, Barbara Ehrenreich said, you want to be a journalist, then you're going to have to accept being poor. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, th th we were privileged in the sense that neither of us made a lot of money, but we certainly made a middle class income with a pension and health benefits. I don't see how real journalists, people who really want to do journalism, are going to be able to replicate that. I'm sort of afraid that we might like be going into a new dark ages, you know, where you sort of go backwards because you're not enlightened. Well, I think that's true. By well, the but media. It's, it's not just the collapse of journalism; it's the collapse of education. And you know, you write about private equity firms. I mean, who are running these charter schools? which is all about rote memorization and enough financial literacy in poor neighborhoods to work in a fast food store. I mean, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's, uh, um, I, unfortunately, I have to agree with you there. So I think, uh, you know, if we're going backwards, that's obviously a, a very bad thing. I, I would hope there's a point at which it stops and somebody finds a way to, you know, shed the light on it again and bring us back into uh, a place and a time where we're educating ourselves and learning and understanding and enlightening. That was Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Gretchen Morganson, author of These Are the Plunderers, How Private Equity Runs and Wrecks America. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.